what is the will of God for your life? That is a question that I'm sure many of us ask over many different topics in our life. Often we're driven by making sure that we do the right thing that God would have us do as we seek to discover what God has us obey and how he has us follow him in this life. Well, our text today is going to allow us to see how the disciples went about living their life, how they went about making decisions, how they went about seeking the Lord's will for them after they had received the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the four corners of the world. No, this passage is not about us per se, but I think there's things that we can get from this passage that are helpful for how we live in this life. As a reminder where we are in the narrative, the ascension of the risen Lord has just occurred. He is now crowned as the king of heaven and of earth, and the king has given forward an assignment to his disciples. These disciples are witnesses of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and now the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are to serve as witnesses of these things as they go out first to their community in Jerusalem and Judea, ultimately to their enemies in Samaria, and then to cultures they do not even know of, to the ends of the earth. And the eyewitnesses of such glory are our eyewitnesses today, beloved, We still base our teaching of the good news on their eyewitness account. But before they begin their witness bearing, Jesus commands them to go back to Jerusalem in verse 4 of last week and to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the scripture passage today describes the apostles' activity that takes place between the Lord's ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as we will see, the disciples are left with a very important decision in the midst of them. Who will replace Judas? What a challenging predicament to be in. For the Lord had assigned Judas to the 12 himself, and now the Lord Jesus is at the right hand of God on high. But there's something for us to see here. There's something for us as a church to witness. How did the disciples go about their decisions? How did they, how did they seek God in understanding their faithful responsibility both to the word and to the mission that he has called them to? The main idea for this passage, I think, is very simple and it's very clear. Jesus' followers seek the Lord's will together by uniting in prayer by relying on the scriptures, and by trusting God to sovereignly direct them. So a driving question for us today, beloved, is simply this. What can we learn from Jesus' followers about seeking the Lord's will for our lives so that we can know how to live in this life that we have? Because the mission that the disciples are given is specific in that they are eyewitnesses of the things of Jesus But beloved, 2,000 years later, our responsibility is still the same. We proclaim the same message to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's get into the text. We see the scene set up in verse 12. Go with me there. 
They then returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So I want us to notice very quickly how obedient the disciples are to the command to go back to Jerusalem. It says they returned to Jerusalem in there in verse 12, immediately. And they were coming from Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, as it might say in your text. This is about a half mile away. It's a Sabbath day's journey, as the text describes. Rabbis during that time interpreted passages like Exodus 16 to to be a very short distance, so as to not walk during the day of Sabbath. So they weren't very far away. But they immediately went back to Jerusalem. And look what the text says. When they entered Jerusalem, they went back up to the upper room where they were staying. This very well could have been the upper room that Jesus served the Lord's Supper to them. It could have been the, Lord's, uh, the upper room that we're going to read about later in Acts chapter 12 that was owned by John Mark. Perhaps these are the same upper rooms. But regardless, they returned to the upper room together. And then notice that Luke lists intentionally the 11 remaining disciples. I think it's important to note that the last one he uh, lists is Judas, the son of James. That is a different Judas than Judas Iscariot, who is the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And notice who is with them. They are together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now Luke has already recorded in his first letter to Theophilus who some of these women are. He lists Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna. These are faithful women who followed Jesus Christ wherever he went, and they were also financial contributors to his ministry. He goes on to list Jesus' own mother, Mary, which Luke also had already written about her faithfulness in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, which we covered during the Christmas season. And then he mentions Jesus' own half-brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. These are the very half-brothers that said in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus was out of his mind, Uh, that they didn't believe a single word that came out of Jesus' mouth in John chapter 7. But somewhere along the way, these half-brothers, disbelief became Belief, and they were now with the disciples and the followers of Jesus. When did these brothers' minds change? Well, it was probably when their brother raised from the dead. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, and then to the apostles. Appearing to James probably began the persuasion that led to their conversion. And they're all together which gives us great insight now as to how they are seeking the Lord while they're waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So how do followers of the Lord Jesus seek his will as they wait? Well, I think the first example for us is found there in verse 14. Jesus' followers were unified and they were devoted to prayer. Look what this, this group is doing. All of these were one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Now, in one accord means they were of like mind, same belief, striving in the same direction. Now, imagine for a second how excited they must have been. 
How, how, how excited they must have been to, to see the risen Lord ascend to the Father's right hand and to be given a commission by the Lord to go and take the gospel all over the world. Uh, surely they were excited. Perhaps they were scared. Uh, obviously their passion would have been bursting forward as we know many of these personalities to be passionate personalities. But sometimes passion and fear can lead to division quite quickly when you're gathered with a bunch of people. So notice what these people are doing. They are devoted to prayer. The Greek verb tense there indicates an ongoing, continuous prayer together. So they are waiting for the Spirit and they are doing so by devoting themselves continuously to one another and to praying. We're not entirely sure what they prayed. We can logically assume what they prayed, knowing that the Holy Spirit was coming. Perhaps they were praying for the outcome and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see in Luke chapter 11 that it, Jesus teaches these disciples how they are to, to pray. Uh, they, Jesus taught them to exalt the Father. He taught them to confess sin. Perhaps they're confessing sin because they did not believe Jesus said was who he said he was while, while they were waiting for the resurrection. Perhaps they were praying for the kingdom of God to come. Jesus had just expanded his teaching about the kingdom of God, that it wasn't just for Israel, but that it was gonna be for the rest of the world to believe on and be saved. They're, they're praying for these things, asking God to comfort their fears, asking God to give them a boldness as they prepare to be witnesses, asking God to crystallize and clarify the message of the gospel and of resurrection that they are gonna be preaching to all different cultures that they've never even intersected with. They're asking God to be glorified. They're asking God for the mission of Christ to go forward even before they proclaim it from their lips. Beloved, I have a question. Are you devoted? Are you devoted to praying and believing that God wants to use you for the very same mission. That he wants to pour his spirit out, that he wants you to confess his sins, that he wants you to pray that the kingdom would come on this earth. Are you described as one who is devoted to prayer? John Piper said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will, to be, will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. George Mueller, an evangelist and a director of an orphanage in England, wrote in his journal, in November of 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or healthy, on land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be, I prayed. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on the... Uh, on uh, for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them and six years passed and the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. The other two remained unconverted for 36 years. 
but he kept praying for them and he knew that God was going to ask, answer his prayer and the final two were converted. Some 52 years after the initial prayer and after he had died and all five were saved. Now imagine we do this together, devoted just as the apostles were to the things that Jesus had just told them. Beloved, applying these things to our heart, I must confess there is a tendency in my own heart to go and to do and to teach and not to pray. Perhaps you are guilty of the very same thing and I want to be honest with you, this spirit struck me this week, teaching me the need to stop and to devote myself to prayer. We are to remain diligent in this. And we even see that it actually keeps us from being divided. They were of one mind, praying as one man. Beloved, often in our waiting, we are not devoted to prayer. But we take matters into our own hands. And we begin to to not think about the things that God would have us be about. And what happens when we don't think about the things that God would have us be about is our preferences begin to take shape and center stage in our life and our preferences become primaries and they end up ultimately dividing us i love this they are devoted diligent in their prayers and they are of one mind prayer also unites us and it's meant for us to pray for god's redeeming purposes moving forward how often could it be described of your group your, your Bible fellowship class, your community group, your men's group, your women's group, how often are you coming together in devoted prayer, praying for the things that Christ has taught us to pray for, like the kingdom come? Confession of sins. If we are getting together, praying only for supplication, for far off things, Uh, like illnesses and whatnot, which we should always pray for. But if we're only praying for those things and only teaching the word, then then the point of our gathering is incomplete. I want to challenge leaders, whatever group that you're in. I'm challenging myself. I'm challenging our elders. I'm challenging our church. What does it look like to be people who are devoted to pray, just like the picture is giving forward here in the word? And in order to do this, beloved, we are to submit to Christ humbly. If we submit to Christ humbly, to our king and to his mission, we will be a people who submit to one another, who serve one another, who have a shared mind with Christ himself, who are fully dependent upon him to answer our prayers. If he has given us the great commission, he plans to fulfill it. And so we must pray as if he is actually going to do what he has commissioned us to do as his church. And beloved, this is where unity comes. And we can also learn from the disciples as as they're seeking the Lord's will what it looks like to depend upon the inspired scriptures just as the disciples here in this passage do. Look with me in verses 15 through 20. By previously naming the 11 apostles, Luke is now helping his reader with the context of Peter's speech, and that's going to be recorded in verse, starting in verse 16. But Luke writes in 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120, 
And so Peter is now leading this group of 120 people who are meeting in the upper room. And listen intently to what Peter says. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted in his share uh, this ministry. Now Luke gives his commentary in verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out and became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is the field of blood. And then Peter starts again. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So in their waiting, as they're praying, they're also pouring over the scriptures, trying to make sense of all that has transpired over the last few weeks. Do you think that these disciples are upset? Uh, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, but these brothers have also been betrayed by Judas. Uh, These brothers walked with him also. And... Surely there's a temptation to wallow in what has happened. Surely there's a temptation to be wrought with bitterness. But I want us to notice what Peter does to help them see what has happened. He takes the scriptures and he says, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the moment, he is rooting them to the authority of God's word. And Peter quotes from Psalm 69, and he quotes from Psalm 109, and he connects directly how the Holy Spirit, through David, is prophesying about what would have happened and what happened to Jesus and what the disciples are to do with it. So he seeks to settle them by rooting them under the authority of God's word. And then he connects the word with what the disciples are immediately to do in their response. And I I think a natural question that rises up in our minds might be, well, how does he begin to take uh, psalms written by David from a long time ago and begin to interpret them and then specifically apply them to this circumstance? It's a good question. I want us to remember from Luke chapter 24, what Luke has already written, written, That after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and the disciples, and it says, and and let me read, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and then listen to this, beloved, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is the writings, must be fulfilled. Jesus is saying that everything in the Old Testament, in the three major categories of the Old Testament, points to Christ in every single way. It points to the fullness of Christ. The disciples already now are using a Christ-centered lens to interpret the scriptures. It's through the glorious lens of King Jesus that they begin to see how the Bible should be Read, and it's a reminder that 
Scripture interprets Scripture, and all the prophecies that were ever made find their yes in Jesus. That's exactly what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And so Peter is starting to get this. And the word here provides clarity in the midst of a tumultuous time from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, what it is that they're to do. And in both of those situations, the Spirit who inspires the written word of God, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is breathed out by God. We see it in 2 Peter chapter 1, that though men write the scripture, they are carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. We see that they're carrying, he's carrying David along as well in these passages. And since Jesus, excuse me, since in both of these contexts, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, The king of God, whose name is David, has been betrayed by treasonous men. These men have denied friendship with the king of God. And so now, Peter is applying this directly to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who sits on David's throne. Jesus is the one who has now been betrayed by Judas. He is the greater king. And so, King Jesus is betrayed by Judas one of his very own, who rejected friendship with God and who also falsely accused him. And so, just as the word says, we need to replace him. You see, it says there in uh, Psalm 109, let another take his office. So after his life is wiped away, as prophesied in Psalm 69, Judas goes and he hangs himself. We see this in Matthew chapter 27. And his life ends His allotment that he had, his share in the ministry is now gone. And his kingdom, there there is no more. It's destroyed. And so what does Peter do? He goes right to the word. And he begins to share, this is what we are to do. Maybe a natural question and then rises up, but why replace Jesus? Why, Why is that an important thing? Well, beloved, remember that it's Jesus who appointed the 12 disciples And and, and it's Jesus, as recorded in Luke 22, that says that these disciples represent and lead and and are judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. They're representative uh, of the old Israel. And as the kingdom of God begins, they are now leading and representing the new Israel, specifically the number 12 allotted, because that is the fulfillment of what God would have as Luke writes in chapter 22. So God's plan through Christ is redeeming a people back to himself, which restores fellowship and and makes things complete again. And here the scriptures call the office of the 12 disciples to be complete again before the mission of God is carried out. We see in the book of Revelation that the number 12 typically signifies the fullness of God's people because of the fullness of God's power as he brings his people into fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And so before this mission goes forward, the 12 are restored according to the scriptures. And and the prophecy sets in motion. It's kind of the first domino to start forward the kingdom of God in all of its fullness as everyone is gathered from the nations back to God himself. We're gonna see quite quickly that some of the disciples lose their lives here just in a few months and they're not replaced 
But before the mission begins, they need to replace Judas. Beloved, do you trust the scriptures as as your authority? Do you trust and believe the scriptures the same way that Peter and the disciples are trusting the scriptures here? Peter said the scripture had to be fulfilled. They totally trusted the word of God, even when their friend betrayed them, even when their world is upside down, even when their Lord has been crucified, raised, and ascended, they are trusting the word of God as their authority. Can the same be said of you in the midst of life's chaos? Do you trust in your experience? Do you trust in your own wisdom? Or do you trust in what has come from the very mouth of God brought forward by the Spirit written by men, the word. This, beloved, is our authority. Let the Bible be your source of authority. Because your your discernment is subjective. Your view is slanted. But the word of God is true, and it's objective, and it's always trustworthy. And so they, they go immediately to the word. Where else can they go? That's the the posture that they're living their lives with. Beloved, the scriptures give us very clear pictures on a lot of things. It might not be as specific as it was here to these disciples, but the, the scriptures give us a very clear picture of what the Great Commission is. The scriptures give us a very clear picture of what sin is and the glory of God and all of his attributes and who God is. The, the, the scriptures give us a very clear picture about the gospel and, and, and Jesus' plan for the church to go into the world and what the church should look like. We're to see this as authority in our lives. Beloved, do, do you look at the scriptures through the lens of Christ? That's another way we can apply this. Do do you look to the scriptures in a Christ-centered way? Do you still look at it as old and new and there's not much connection to it? Do Do you look at the scriptures and you're always looking for the law that you think you're supposed to fulfill? Or or do you look at the scriptures in a man-centered way? Or do you look at the scriptures on how God wants to prosper you? Do you look for scriptures for answers for your life only without seeing it through the lens of the great answer? who is Jesus. Beloved, if you want to read your Bible rightly, let's read it the same way that the disciples read it, and that is through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes sense of the gospel according to the prophets and the gospel according to the apostles, the fulfillment of it all. Lastly, beloved, do you run to the scriptures to to let the scriptures interpret your life? to to let the scriptures read you instead of you reading the scriptures? Do you run to the scriptures to make sense of things that are going on in in your life? Do you run to the scriptures when you are being tempted? A great way to avoid temptation as you are being tempted is to run to the word and to soak yourself in it. You will not sin because the word of God is hidden in your heart. Do you run to the scriptures in this way to be reminded of grace, do you, remi- do you run to the scriptures to learn and understand your sin? Do you run to the scriptures to see what repentance looks like and what the wage of your penalty of sin is if the grace of Christ hasn't covered it? 
Beloved, do you obey the scriptures the same way that Peter is doing here? If this is what the word says, then this is what we're gonna do. James says, be, be, uh, be doers of the word and not just hearers, those who just deceive themselves. Perhaps you've been listening to the word for a long time, you're just not putting it into practice. Believe in your heart today that the word is from the Lord and it's for your good and it's for his glory. And then Peter lays out the qualification for the replacement. Look with me in verse 21. So when one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and in among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. This is the qualification. The scriptures tell Peter and the disciples that they are to replace him, but the scriptures don't say exactly who they're to replace him with. And so they take the words of the Lord Jesus that are given in Luke chapter 24, that you are to be my witnesses, same here in Acts chapter 1, and they make a wise, logical decision according to the word. We need to find a witness And they give the qualification. Somebody who has been with us since Jesus was baptized with John all the way to his ascension. Someone who is a witness of the resurrection, as it says right here. One who saw with their own eyes the raised and risen victorious Lord. Why is that important? Because Christianity is founded on the historical resurrection. We believe it today based on the eyewitness accounts the preached word of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so they said, let's find someone who has been with us. And who do they find? Verse 23, they put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, man with three names, and Matthias. And then finally, as they put these men forward, we learn the final thing from these disciples on what it looks like to seek the Lord's will, what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to live. We see Jesus' followers agreed and trusted in God's sovereign direction. So they're, they're praying, they're tethered to the word, and then look in verse 24 again, they're still praying. They said, and they prayed, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They trusted, as they were praying, and as they were believing in the word, they trusted that God knew the hearts of men, and that God would ultimately reveal who it was that God had chosen to replace Judas. And they cast lots after praying and and they trusted God. And and I want us to see that after the lots were cast, that he was numbered with the 11. That means they agreed together that this is how God had moved. This is how God had revealed his plan for them. There's no griping. There's not like, man, I liked justice better. And well, his name's actually this. No, they, they numbered him along with the 11. And they agreed and they moved forward and they trusted God. And, and how did they do this? Well, it says that they practiced the art of lots, which 
was a common practice of Israel. You might be asking, well, what is lots and why don't we do that today? Well, lots is simply this, writing a name on a wood block, putting in a bag, shaking it, and then letting the lot come out of the bag and whatever name would have been on there would have been the name that they moved forward with. Obviously, that name was Matthias, a man we don't know much about at all. But the disciples knew what the word said. Uh, The disciples knew that God spoke in this way during this season uh, in Israel and now the church. We see in Numbers 26 that the land of Israel was divided up amongst the people uh, by the practice of lots. But, but the word of God, and this is really important, the word of God says in Proverbs 16.33, though the lot is cast in the lap, every decision comes from the Lord. So the disciples would have known that as the lot was cast forward, this is what Christ has appointed himself. This is the 12th disciple that is to replace Judas. And I know what all of you are asking right now. Why don't we cast lots today? It seems to be a pretty accurate practice. Well, we never see the practice again in the scriptures. It's never happens again in all of the church planting and the suffering and the decisions that we're going to go through in the book of Acts and as we study the epistles in the years ahead, we'll never see it again because the reality is in just a few short days, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will come upon the people, the very one, the very person that Jesus calls uh, in the high, high priestly prayer to his disciples before he's arrested, the helper the one who helps us make our decisions, the one who helps us understand the scriptures and to interpret the scriptures rightly, the one who helps us move forward in faith according to his will. Now, beloved, the main purpose of this passage is not for us to just to find out God's will and all the decisions of our life, but I I want us to see that the faithful practices of these disciples is really important for us and we should take some things away from them and, and, and most importantly, this truth, based on all the decisions that they're making, it's all tethered to the mission of God that has been given to them through Jesus Christ. We want to be a people who make decisions based on that and we're gonna kind of tease out maybe what that looks like a little bit. A few takeaways for us in closing today. The reality is, you are alive today to bear the name of Christ, to to, to proclaim him, to grow into maturity. And that's why you're here. It's to enjoy things that you have, but for the purpose of God and his mission, period. There's, There's really no other explanation in the scriptures as to why the church is here. So a few takeaways for us for our normal, boring, mundane lives, okay? First, obey and practice what God has clearly revealed in his word. Obey and practice what God has clearly revealed in his word. Don't ignore God's revealed will while we're trying to find out what God's hidden will is in certain places of our life. Because God has spoken very, very clearly in his word about the mission of the church. First attention must always be given to the clearly revealed word of God. 
The reality is we're sometimes so worried about whether or not we're making the right decision for our lives that we're not obeying and we are neglecting what God has asked us to obey very clearly. God's revealed word is clearly revealed in his Bible. Many things the Bible is so clear about. For example, he's really clear in this passage, replace the man in the office. It's very clear and so that's exactly what they do. And there's things that God asks us to do. He asks us to love one another as we have been loved by him. He asks us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Beloved, he's asked us to make disciples of all nations. Ask yourself, am I about that in my life? He's asked us to be faithful in giving joyfully. He's asked us to be prayerful, praying without ceasing. He's asked us to be faithful to our spouses. Are you faithful to your spouse as the Lord has clearly called you to be as you represent him to the church and to the lost world? He has said clearly in his word that we worship God alone and no other. Do you worship God alone? Have you asked yourself lately, what other gods am I worshiping? And be faithful to repent to worship the living God. Read the word. Believe the word. Do the word. It's very clear. Number two, let the scriptures inform wise, logical decisions that are connected to his mission and the spread of the gospel. You know, the question that you might ask, should I start a family? Yes, start a family. But start a family so that you can be a witness of Christ to your offspring. And you can train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and then send them off to the four corners of the earth. Uh, should I buy a house? If it makes logical sense, buy a home. But pray for 52 years that your neighbors would be saved. Be intentional with opening up your home in hospitality. Be intentional in how you pray for them and how you teach your children to pray for them. Think about them in a redemptive way. Maybe you're kicking around the idea right now if you should adopt a child. If it makes sense financially and it's something that God has put in your heart, do it for the glory of God. Do it. It doesn't say in the scriptures exactly where you should adopt it does say we should care well for, for orphans, but do so proclaiming how you too have been adopted by Christ and into his family. We can apply the word of God and the mission of God in a different way when we make logical decisions that the scriptures are laying forward in his word. And they're not all specific. Not everything can be found in this word. I know that's a big question that we have and I, I'm very mindful uh, of that. The scripture didn't lay forward Judas's replacement, but the followers uncovered the Lord's will through prayer, through the scriptures. And it's through these things that gave them the means by which to make a good, faithful decision to bring forward these two candidates. Beloved, God invites us into a process of showing his us his direction through prayer, through trusted counsel, through his word, 
wise action. Don't we find ourselves in many decisions today? There are so many decisions that each of you are dealing with and the number of them in this room, I'm sure, is overwhelming for a man to bear. But we are called to make disciples. So where you live isn't as important as how you go about and why you go about making disciples. And if you're crippled in fear, going, what if it's the wrong decision? Well, if it's done trusting the Lord, devoted with your church in prayer, seeking God, praying, asking, help, help me God, and you do it in faith, with his glory in mind, with the mission of God in mind, even if it's a bad decision, what does that do to you as it relates to the love of God in Christ to you? You cannot be taken from the love of God in Christ. You cannot be separated from it. Let's not live in fear. Let's be faithful. Let's be prayer-filled. Let's be submitting our lives to the scriptures just as these disciples are doing. And let's think about the mission that God would have us do. There's a big decision in our life right now, guys. Two sets of doctors are trying to give us counsel on which way we go with our daughter. You can't find it in the scriptures necessarily, but I do find in the scriptures a responsibility to raise her in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I do find in the scriptures uh, the responsibility to pray for her that she would know the living God who created her. And, and these two directions are just different. But we're gonna trust the spirit through the word as it informs us, trusted counsel. We're gonna, we're gonna trust that we're going to make a decision that is best for her. I hope it is, but here's the reality. If we're devoted to the Lord, then he's gonna be glorified. He will trust, or he will, he will keep us. So trust what the Bible says. Pray, be a part of a group together. Beloved, here at First Irving, we preach Christ crucified. It's the most glorious news because Each of us are sinners, and as sinners, we are deserving of death. In fact, all of us deserve to die because of sin, just like Judas did. The difference between you and Judas, other than the grace of God. The reality is, all of us have betrayed Jesus for far more than 30 pieces of silver. That's just a few hundred bucks in our world. But in the mercy of God, listen to what Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus bore our sins, how out displays the love of God for us, beloved. He died in our place. Those who admit that they are sinners and are deserving of death those who admit that they need a savior, those who repent of their sins and turn to Christ in faith, they will live. That's what the scriptures say. If you don't know that truth today, uh, our heart is bleeding for you to know it. We want you to know the goodness of God, this this message that has gone around the world over and again for 2,000 years. 
If you believe on Christ and you turn from your sin, you are justified by his blood. That's what it says in Romans 5, 9. Because Jesus took your place on the cross. This is the sacrifice that appeased God's wrath for your sin. Have you ever thought of the wrath of God towards your sin? A picture of that is Judas in this, in this lot of land. The wrath of God on sin. And it was placed then on Jesus as he's dying on the cross. And so God the Father looks at Jesus on the cross and as he dies, and he is satisfied with the penalty of your sin, beloved. You thought about that lately? Have you, have you thought about that type of love, that type of justification? No, your sin is not swept away. It's not just moved on to another space. Jesus was crushed for you. And I think sometimes we recognize our guilt, but I don't know how often we allow the death of Christ to really affect our grieving of sin. How often do you look at Christ as he's being crucified in your own mind, seeing how God thinks of sin? This is the message that we are meant to bring forward to the world. And then we bear witness with the apostles who saw him raised from the dead who saw him conquer death. And we go share that message. This is our work today, beloved. We're called to gather together. We're called to be devoted together. We're called to be about the mission together. And we're called to be reminded of the gospel together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would be a people who are devoted to your mission. We're devoted to your Christ. We're devoted to prayer and to the scriptures and to one another. God, would you help us be? Would you work and move for your glory and our good? And because there's many people who don't know this gospel of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.